At first, it was just one sheep per day. But as the deadly dragon grew more powerful, he demanded more and more. Soon it was the people of Silene themselves, so intense was his insatiable hunger, his desperate desire for more and more. Until, until one day a courageous knight named George agrees to confront the dragon. After a long and bloody battle, George finally defeats the cruel beast, saves the princess, and rescues the town. With what weapon did George slay the dragon? A spear? A lance? A sword? Maybe, just maybe, the dragon was slain by love. Welcome to Slain by Love, your weekly sermon podcast from the pulpit of St. George's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Good morning, y'all. Please be seated and good morning. I have a question for you to get things started off this morning, a question for you with that gospel lesson from Mark chapter 1 ringing in your ears. The question is this, do you believe in demons? Hmm. Do you believe in demons? Father Brown does. Father Brown, yeah, Father Brown, that wonderful and delightful character created by G.K. Chesterton, that wise and jolly priest who also has a penchant for solving murder mysteries. Father Brown, the character of the recent BBC series, technically it's a detective period drama which is now in season 11. Highly recommended. It is so, so good. If you have not gotten into Father Brown on BBC or Amazon Prime or Breadbox, I highly recommend it. Father Brown believes in demons. And yet, in a recent episode with a man who is possibly possessed by a demon, Guess what Father Brown does? He brings the man to the local psychiatrist. And it turns out that, in fact, this man is a schizophrenic. So, yes, Father Brown does believe in demons. He believes that they are a real thing. But he also knows that mental illness is a real thing. Now, friends, today we come to the gospel lesson in Mark 1. And what do we find? We find Jesus preaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. And what happens? Jesus encounters a man with an unclean spirit. In other words, he encounters a man with a demon. Was it really a demon? Actually, it doesn't really matter because this is a story about liberation. Let me hear you say liberation. Liberation. It's a story about liberation. In the gospel stories, wherever Jesus goes, he brings about the kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom of God? It's where we find liberation. It is where God's will becomes reality. And what is God's will? Well, in this case, here in in this synagogue in Capernaum with the demon-possessed man, God's will 
is liberation. Just like Jesus' sermon that you might remember from Luke chapter 4 in that other synagogue at Nazareth when Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim release to the captives to let the oppressed go free. So what does Jesus do here in Mark chapter 1 with this man, this suffering man standing before him, this man who's in bondage, this man who's oppressed and being tormented, this man who's experiencing a kind of pain that perhaps few of us in this room will ever know. Here is what Jesus does. He embodies the kingdom of God. He makes God's will, God's will for God's creation, he makes God's will a reality. He turns to this oppressed man who's in bondage and he sets him free. He liberates him. And it doesn't really matter at one level if it was a demon or schizophrenia or a drug addiction or something else. The point is that the God of Jesus, the God of Israel, the God whom you and I are worshiping today, this God wills our freedom. This God wills our peace, our well-being, our flourishing, our liberty. That, dear friends, is the kingdom of God. And in this story in Mark 1, it's embodied by Jesus. Jesus, who can liberate people from any kind of bondage. Jesus, who can break any chain. Jesus, who can set you free from any kind of captivity whatsoever. And this, this discussion that you and I have been having for the last couple of minutes about liberty, this leads in a straight line to our epistle lesson, our epistle lesson from 1 Corinthians 8, where that word pops up again, liberty, verse 9. Take care that this liberty, Paul says, take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Hmm. Hmm. Let me repeat that. Paul looks at these Jesus followers, right, in the first century in Corinth, and he says, take care that this liberty of yours does not cause your weak brothers or sisters to stumble and fall. Now, that feels a little different from the gospel lesson, does it not? I mean, in the synagogue uh, in Capernaum, in Mark 1, liberty is a good thing, period, full stop. It's a wonderful thing. It's a dimension of the kingdom of God, which is unspeakably wonderful, this redemption of this man in bondage. In Mark 1, liberty, a.k.a. freedom, is a very, very wonderful thing. But here in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 8, it feels a little different, does it not? Listen to that verse again. Take care, Paul says, that this liberty of yours does not cause your sisters and brothers to stumble. It sounds like this liberty, this freedom, has another side to it. In fact, it seems like this liberty, which, is, which was a good thing in Mark, 
can now in 1 Corinthians, it feels like it can be turned into a weapon, something that can be used to cause people harm. It seems like that because, yes, in reality, that is how it is. This freedom, this freedom and liberty of the kingdom of God, somehow it has, by the time we get to 1 Corinthians 8, this house church in Corinth, it has become problematic, dangerous, kind of like a double-edged sword. Quick story. Some of y'all who know me know that I grew up as a Southern Baptist. And if you know anything about Southern Baptists, you know that, well, they are not huge fans of alcohol. Now, when I went off to college at the University of Texas in the early 90s, I became a Presbyterian. And one of the wonderful things about Presbyterianism, kind of like Lutheranism and Anglicanism, one of the great things about Presbyterianism is this, call, this thing called Christian liberty. Christian liberty. Now, I'm not going to throw the Baptists under the bus, but I am going to give a high five to the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, and the Anglicans. They have this wonderful idea of Christian liberty which teaches that everything that God has made is good. Everything that God has made is good, and we should not be legalists. We should not be legalists. We should not be in bondage to some list of do's and don'ts that stifle our joy and trick us into thinking that some of the things that God made are actually not good. Ah, Christian liberty. It is a wonderful doctrine. And it set my heart on fire as a senior at UT when I got into the habit of imbibing nice big pints of Guinness with my Christian brothers. It was wonderful. But fast forward 20 years, fast forward two decades, and now I'm an Episcopal priest in Tyler, Texas, circa 2015, and I'm in this church planting role, this church planting role, launching a second campus of Christ Episcopal Church in Tyler, Texas. And it's kind of like a church plant. It's very evangelistic. It's exciting. Lots and lots of new folks, young, old, all kinds of folks coming into the church. It's wonderful. But so much of the activity, so much of the fellowship involved Alcohol. Welcome to the Episcopal Church. The pub clubs, the crawfish boils, the men's Bible studies, all of them prominently featured alcohol. Now, I'm not saying that that was wrong. After all, we do, I do, believe in Christian liberty. Yes. But what about the people who don't drink? What about folks who've had negative experiences in their past, experiences of pain involving alcohol? What about folks in recovery, people who are working every day to stay sober and to overcome their addictions? What about them? If I'm honest, 
it took me a long time to remember them, to develop a sensitive heart toward them. You see, Christian liberty is fantastic. It's great. It's wonderful. It really is. It is a glorious truth of the gospel. But in those early days of Christ Church South, was I in danger? Were we in danger of causing hurt to some people? Were we forgetting about some of God's children, people that you might call vulnerable? Yes, I believe that we were. Christian liberty, it is an idea that revolutionized those new followers of Jesus in the first century in Corinth, the people to whom Paul is writing this letter. They loved this idea of Christian liberty. They understood that, that, the idols, that the idols involved in the ritual slaughter of meat were not real. They understood that they were free in Christ to partake not just of alcohol, but of meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And they were not wrong. Paul agrees with them. They were, in reality, free in that way. They did have a right to eat that meat. And yet... What does Paul say to them? He says that there is an even better way. There is an even better way. Knowledge, St. Paul says in verse 1, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of this wonderful doctrine of Christian liberty. According to St. Paul, it puffs up. It's not wrong, but there is a better way. Anyone who claims to know something, Paul says, does not have the necessary knowledge, verse 2. Hmm. What is this necessary knowledge? It's the knowledge of love. It's the knowledge, as you heard Sergio read a couple of minutes ago, it's the knowledge of love. Yes, these Corinthian believers to whom Paul speaks, yes, they had a right to that sacrificial meat. Sacrificial meat is a wonderful gift, kind of like a pint of Guinness. But what about folks in that congregation in Corinth who were vulnerable our English Bibles translate the Greek word as weak. You saw that word in the epistle lesson. It translates the word as weak, but you could just as easily translate it as vulnerable or even perhaps precarious. What about them? The weak ones, the vulnerable ones, the precarious ones. What about the sisters and brothers inside the church family who, due to their life experiences, have a certain issue with meat that had been sacrificed to idols. To put it in our contemporary language, what about the folks who, when they see other people eating that meat sacrificed to idols, they feel triggered? What about them, the vulnerable ones? 
the weak ones. Paul says to the strong ones, the strong ones, the knowledgeable ones, to them he says, give up your rights. Give up your rights. He says, yes, you do have Christian liberty. Yes, in reality, there is only one God who's actually real. Those idols that the meat was sacrificed for actually don't exist. Yes, you have a right to eat that meat, Paul says. And yet, there is still a more better way. There's a better way, and there's even a more excellent way, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. It is called the way of love, and it involves giving up our rights for the sake of our sisters and brothers who feel vulnerable, who feel like their lives are precarious. What would it look like if we were to do that? I'm not saying that we're not doing it, but what would it look like if we were to do that even perhaps more than we are? What would that look like? We live in a culture in which everyone is in the habit of demanding their rights. I have a right to this. I have a right to that. Don't trample on my rights. There's big picture rights in the political sphere, right? If, even at the level of public policy, there's rights on the left and rights on the right. There's rights on the left, like we have a right to name it. We have a right to universal health care. There's rights on the right. We have a right to a Second Amendment right to bear arms. We have a right to free speech. I am certain that Paul wouldn't give a rip, Jesus wouldn't give a rip about the left or the right. Of that, I am certain. There's other rights that hit closer to home. Maybe someone over here thinks that they, it, it, and, and I mean it, they, they hit very close to home. Maybe someone over here thinks that they have a right to post something on social media. And something over, someone over here thinks that they have a right to buy some product on Amazon.com. St. Paul looks at us left, right, whatever, and he says, Christian liberty is wonderful. Nothing that God has made is bad. You are free to do all sorts of things. And yet, there is a still more excellent way. Giving up your right for the sake of your neighbor. That, dear friends, is what Jesus does and did for us. It's all in Philippians chapter 2, where it says that he did not consider equality with God as a right. He did not consider equality as a God, with equality with God something to be grasped, something to be grabbed onto, something to be demanded. No, he did not. Rather, he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant. He did that for us, for, for you and me, the weak ones, the vulnerable ones, the precarious ones. Because you see, some of us have knowledge, yes. Some of us, all of us have Christian liberty, yes. But do you know what? When it comes to our spiritual life, 
when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our standing before God, guess what? We are all weak. We are all precarious. We are all vulnerable. We are all in need of God's grace. In that sense, we're all in the same boat. And so we might as well just give up our rights. Give up your rights for the sake of your neighbor. It's called forbearance. One of my legal friends taught me that word a while back. It's called forbearance. And it's the way of love. Friends, it sort of blows my mind to think that we are just a little more than two weeks away from Lent, from Ash Wednesday. What are you planning to give up? What am I planning to give up? Here's an idea. What if this year we were to give up our rights? For 40 days, really and truly, to practice intentional forbearance and to give up our rights, that is what Jesus does for us, and that would be a most excellent way. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the pulpit of St. George's Austin, where the love of God in Christ slays our enemies, our fears, our guilt, our worries. How are they slain? Only by love. Special thanks to the good folks of St. George's and especially to that masterful media guru, Liam Dolan Henderson. See you next week. Peace and be well.